Welcome to the High Reliability Podcast, presented by Goslin Martin Associates. I'm your host, Peter Martin, president of Goslin Martin Associates. The High Reliability Podcast is focused solely on the healthcare facility man- management profession, and it's presented by the Career Hub. The Career Hub is sponsored by Goslin Martin Associates. Jack and I have been working on it for several months now. We rolled it out in June, so if you haven't checked it out yet, please do so. You can link to it off of our main website at goslin-associates.com, or you can link to it directly at careers.goslin-associates.com. Today, I'm happy to be joined by Renee Jacobs. Renee has had a successful career in healthcare facilities management, both on the acute care and consulting side. Renee is a fellow for the American Society of Healthcare Engineering. She's a certified healthcare facility manager. She's a certified healthcare constructor, and she has more than 20 years and a billion dollars worth of experience in construction project management and the coordination of projects. As such, she's managed hundreds of healthcare projects, including the Menorah Medical Center, a replacement hospital that opened in 1996, as well as numerous projects for Health Midwest a $2 billion Midwestern regional hospital system. She's been the VP of Facilities and Construction at St. Luke's Health System, where she had oversight of all areas of design, construction, renovation, master planning, and plant operations and maintenance for 11 Kansas City area hospitals. In 1998, Renee founded RJ Consulting, a woman-owned business enterprise. RJ Consulting provided construction project management services for the University of Kansas Hospital, for the city of Overland Park, Kansas, which included a new convention center, a 20-story, $55 million Sheridan Hotel, and she had many other clients when she founded RJ Consulting. Renee's most recent position was a strategic account manager at Johnson Controls, where she strategically aligned sales and operations for three national healthcare customers. In fact, when Renee and I first started corresponding about this podcast just a few short weeks ago, she was employed at Johnson Control in a role as a strategic account manager. Now, as we speak, she seeks new opportunities, which just goes to show how quickly the tide can turn in these tumultuous days. Renee, how are you? And thanks for joining us today. Well, Pete, thank you so much. I feel honored uh, to be able to be a part of this podcast. And I know that I'm surrounded by a number of colleagues that you have um, interviewed on your other podcasts. So thank you for allowing me to join you. So to answer your question, I'm I'm doing absolutely fantastic. Uh, It has, as you said, it's been a challenging few weeks, but I have had an amazing outpouring of support and cannot tell you how encouraged I am by the number of people in the industry who have reached out to me, been willing to help, and also have talked about creating positions for me. So it's been absolutely amazing. And even in the current economic and pandemic climate, my family is healthy, I'm healthy, and I couldn't ask for more. Excellent. I'm I'm glad to hear that. And it certainly sounds like you've got things in the, the proper perspective, especially with the, um, you know, the health of your family. Are you, uh, are you looking to stay in healthcare? What are your thoughts as you, as you reach this, this new opportunity? 
Absolutely. Healthcare has been my passion for almost 30 years now. And I can't imagine being in a different industry. So in some role, I would love to bring value to healthcare customers or healthcare organizations. And that is really where I want to be. And I haven't really determined what that looks like yet. So I'm still trying to figure out where that that vision is going to play out and where I can best um, add, add value to not just the organization I decide to go to work for, but be valued by that organization and feel like I'm a contributor. Yeah, so important. It's, you know, we talk, and especially these, you know, these past couple of months since March or so, we'll get calls from candidates all the time who were surprisingly let go, you know, surprising to them a Friday afternoon or whatever it happened to be. And, you know, they're looking for that next thing. And as we always tell them, I think it's so important to be able to take that break, whatever it is, you know, if it's a week, if it's two weeks, just to to decompress. And then as you're doing now, making sure that, you know, you're taking that opportunity and it's something that you really want to do. Sometimes people can be very um, reactive to it. You know, you feel like you have to do something, so you might jump. But taking that time period, and it's different for everybody, is so important to to recalibrate and and to make that next step. Because as you said, you want to be, you know, you want to be the proper one for you for your career, and you've already determined I want to stay in healthcare. I've put in thirty years. This is what I like. This is what I enjoy. So it's really critical. What is it, Renee, that you like about healthcare? What is it that draws you to healthcare? That is a question that I think is almost best answered by what I saw in colleagues uh, over the years. And I, I fell into healthcare by accident, really. I was working for a general contractor and I had an opportunity where the, the general contractor was going through some changes organizationally. And my, my boss, who is a VP, had a relationship with a facility director at Menor Medical Center and he came to me and he said, look, they're looking for someone to oversee the construction of a new Greenfield hospital that's going to be a replacement hospital. They want somebody who knows construction and they want eyes and ears out on the job site looking for anything that's not in the best interest of the hospital. So I jumped on the opportunity, was fortunately hired, and at the time, I, Pete, it's really hard to go back in time and think that when I got out of college with uh, the degree I had in construction science and management out of engineering college, it was extraordinarily difficult to find a job as a female in construction. Uh, construction companies, one of my interviews, the, the contractor told me that it was a job where I'd have to travel and they couldn't afford me because they would have to get an additional hotel room for me. And I wouldn't be able to have shared rooms with some of the other men on the team that would I, I would have to travel with. So I had come from a background where jobs were very difficult to come by in that industry for women. So when I, when I got into working for Menorah, the thing that compelled me the most to take that job was that this facility director was so passionate about his job and making sure that he was providing an environment that was the most conducive environment for care for the patients and the staff and 
the people that walked in the door that it was a whole new world to me. It's like, man, this, this individual just loves what he does. And he's, he's all about doing whatever he can to, to be the best that he can be to deliver the best facility for this healthcare organization. And I was so impressed by his passion that I was, I joined the organization and was in charge of the construction of this um, mega campus for six years. And as a very young female, as my early twenties running a, and the time I think about, the chain to you know cost the if you fast forward to today what that would cost in today's dollars but a a, a huge project and I, and I was a female in my early 20s and was running the whole project i back in the day they didn't have equipment planners so i did all the equipment planning for the building and put together equipment planning oh, manuals wow. and so yes yeah, submitted those to the engineering team That's... so i, I it's a lot to take on at a young, I mean, as you just said, I mean, now there are people who are committed to equipment planning. That's what they do. And so you, you were doing that with everything else. That's quite the responsibility. I was. I want to ask you, um, and this is going back even a little bit further, but as a female, what drew you to construction uh, to as as a college freshman? What, what was it about it that, that you said, you know what, I, I want to major in this and this is what I want to do? It's interesting the influence you have in your, your life that you don't even realize. I had a high school physics teacher, and physics came very easy to me. Math and physics were just a natural. And he pulled me aside one day Ugh. and said, <laughs> I know, uh, it's like, whose brain works that way, right? <laughs> um, Not mine. <laughs> well, I'm, I was blessed with that. And he pulled me aside and said, have you ever thought of engineering? And literally, my my family's all in medicine. My dad's a dentist. I dental assisted all through high school and college and started working in my dad's office after school when I was, I think, 12. I'd walk to his office and, and set up dental trays. And so I knew, knew I didn't want to be a dentist. And that was definitely not in, in the cards for me. So I took this high school professor or, or high school teacher. And he said, Hey, look at, look at this and tell me what you think. And I, it was, um, something that really interested me. And so I started looking into engineering and went into architectural engineering initially. And then as I really got into the architectural engineering, I did an internship. And that's when it really shifted for me because I'd done three years of architectural engineering, but I, in my internship, I was out in the field managing construction projects and it just really excited me. It was the, the biggest thing was for your work, you have a tangible asset. When you get done at the end of the day, I could drive down the street and show my daughter every building I was involved with. And it just really, that excited me to have something tangible for all the work that I was doing. Yeah, no, you're right. It's it's there. It is. You've created it, and and it stands there. It's interesting perspective. You never know who's going to have those impacts on you at that those young ages. But certainly sounds like it was uh, for you. It was impactful, which leads me to kind of my next question. I mean, you're 
your healthcare experience is really well-rounded. It's even more well-rounded now that I know that you were a dental assistant. Um, but you've had project management accountability. Um, you've been a VP for a multi-hospital system. Uh, you've worked directly for hospitals as an employee. You've worked indirectly for hospitals in a consulting role and then for a Johnson Controls role. Which roles are your favorite and why? I would say hands down working as a VP of facilities and construction was the, has been the best role and the best experience I've had. And it was, uh, they, they, the organization had a $330 million heart hospital and expand, major campus expansion and renovation project that had stalled out. And unfortunately there was a disconnect between the clinicians and the clinical staff and the doctors, the medical staff and the construction team. There was no communication. And one of the things wow. that can, I, I can ask you, a, yes. can I ask you a question, Ray? When you say sure. stalled out, how did that manifest? Uh, did it literally stop or what, how was it stalled out? The, it literally, it almost stopped because there was, uh, they had a bond uh, issue. So they had $330 million in bond funds and the budget hadn't been finalized. They were trying to get the final guaranteed maximum price from the contractor and design was going back and forth. And there was a, there was not a lot of communication between the design team and the hospital uh, cardiovascular team. And so the hospital had basically put a pause and said, we're not going to move forward until we're sure that we're getting what we need for this $330 million. And rightfully so. So I came in and pulled the whole thing together, pulled the team together, had a, a tremendous team to work with between the contractors, architects, engineers, but really reset and level set the project and said, okay, here's our goal. How are we going to get there? Um, and, and that process was not easy. Uh, we, I had to go back and recreate what was actually spent on the project. They were tracking only hard costs. And so I had to go back and recapture all the soft costs to know really where we were within that $330 million and then put a software in nope. place to be able to track the, the budget. So nobody was tracking was tracking soft costs, huh? No, and that's obviously wow. you know, up to 40, 50, 40 plus percent of the project yeah. costs. So it was uh, it was pretty shocking to me. Significant. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's not a significant. Yeah. That's not an insignificant number. <laughs> yeah. How did you? So um, it was. How did you? You know, I was going to ask you, how did you realign, you know, apart from the work that you did, you know, budgetary wise and, and kind of recalibrating, how did you overcome or how did the team overcome the silo aspect between your internal customers, you know, your clinicians, um, your staff, all, all the people who, who want to be heard and seen and have a voice in a construction project? How did you realign them? How did you bring them together as one? It was engaging, it really engaging the, the clinicians, the staff, the VPs, everybody bringing people in and including them in the meetings. And one 
piece of the project, we actually piloted an, an integrated project delivery or an IPD. It was a modified IPD, but we piloted. We'd never done that. And what was the pivotal point in that IPD project was that we had, I brought in a third-party consultant, um, FMI, and we set aside an entire day where FMI uh, led the session with the contractor, architects, engineers. We brought in environmental services, security. Uh, We brought in different departments and I brought in the key leaders and the people that were going to be basically living and working in that building. And they were in this all day teaming team building session with the contractors and subcontractors. And the two really pivotal points that came out of that were uh, one, there were people that had great ideas that felt like they didn't have a voice because they were told as a subcontractor, you just, be quiet, do what's on the plans, deliver what's on the plans. And I came in and broke that silo down and said, everybody, if you're here today, it's because you've been selected as a part of the team and you have a voice. So please use it. So we ended up with some tremendous ideas. I did an entire case study on how the value of this IPD and how much money we saved and were able to deliver what seemed to be a project within a budget that everybody said couldn't be met. And then the second real pivotal pivotal thing that happened there is that the subcontractors were able to talk to the, the clinicians and say, you know, when we just finished this wall and we just spent, you know, work till five o'clock at night, we stayed over time to make sure that wall was painted. And then you come in the next morning and tell us that you want that changed you have literally destroyed our morale on the construction project. And, and it was an aha moment. It was like really an aha moment for these clinicians. And they're like, well, we didn't have, you know, we knew it costed money, but we had no idea that it affected the morale and it slowed production and all this other stuff. So getting the level of where the nurse manager on this floor actually is talking to the subcontractor, the drywall contractor, and they're having all these moments where they're like, wait, well, I can help you by doing this and you can help me by doing this. And it just, at the end of the day, I, after the project was finished, I can't even tell you how many contractors and subcontractors came up to me and the, the whole clinical team and said, this is the best project we have ever worked on. We would do this again every day of the week. Hmm. That second example is a, is a good one because that's like next level communication that you always that you don't always get to on construction projects, right? Where the subcontractor is talking directly to the customer and the customer hears from the subcontractor in their own words. There's no middle, you know, there's no middle there to filter the message. And you don't get that in projects all that often, do you? Uh, no, that rarely. I, I don't know. That was the first time I'd ever seen it happen. And it was so beneficial just because we, we were trying to deliver, like I said, it was, um, I'd been given a budget that we felt there was, you know, it was very tall orders and we didn't think there was going to be any way we could deliver a, a 36 patient room floor out of a shell space for the money that was allocated. And we did it. And it was all attributed to that working together and looking at everything differently, everything from, how do we um, 
change the, the world of fire stopping so that we're not, we're going to save $200,000 by just fire stopping differently and defining what types of holes can we put in the walls to um, we're going to change some of the finishes. They're going to look the same, but mm-hmm. Hey, the electrical contractor came up with this fixture that looks identical and it's $200 cheaper fixture. And so it was just this massive collaboration of all these subcontractors that and the clinical staff, well, we can give this up if we, you know, we, this is really something we can give up to make sure we have this and we can have these additional 36 patient rooms. You've worked on both sides of the spectrum. You've been a direct hospital employee and you've also been a consultant. What are some of the differences between both of those roles, being a consultant working for the hospital as opposed to a direct hospital employee? There's, you know, initially there's a little bit of a difference because when you come in as a consultant, many times the team that's there in place is resentful or very cautious, not wanting to share a lot of information. But what I would typically do as a consultant is try to really integrate myself with the team that was that, that was there already and work with them to, to improve on processes, put policies and procedures in place that may be missing, being able to really act as if I was a hospital employee was key to that. And I would have a hospital employee badge and I was really viewed as a, a number of people didn't even know that I was a consultant. So it was only really the facilities and construction department that knew that. And some of the, the biggest things were to, to earn the trust and being, it, I always hate to really bring this into play, but it really is a factor that being female and coming in and trying to run facilities management. Like at, when I was a VP, I took an outsourced facilities management contract and brought facilities management back in house and that was a major undertaking, but even as a consultant or in that leading facilities, you have to earn the respect of the people and know that there's, there's individuals that have been around for 20, 30 years that knew the plant like the back of their hand and having respect for that and really taking the time to sit down with them and pull from their knowledge and respect that knowledge. So if a funny thing happened when I was a VP, it was probably my second week of working for this hospital system. And the, the main flagship hospital, uh, a snake had gotten into the Kansas City Power and Light vault and taken out power to half of the hospital. And, and of course, this <laughs> happens at like, you know, obviously these things always happen at two in the morning. So it's like two in the right. morning. So it's the third shift staff in the automatic transfer switch didn't transfer. And the, the, the third shift staff had not been trained on how to manually transfer that switch. And so the hospital's out without power for a period of time because if you, you know, if it doesn't transfer to emergency power, you have no power. And so I sat down um, the next morning with the director of facilities and said, okay, I need you to get me the one line diagrams. We're going to walk through this. And we sat down and went through it in detail. Like what happened? We went out and looked at the ATS and I was familiar with ATSs and 
and he went back to the plant and he said to his team, he said, look, you guys, she knows what she's doing. I'm very impressed. You listen to her. And that was a <laughs> pivotal point, but it's, it's <laughs> taking the time to respect that even though somebody may perceive that you don't, you know, you're may not know what you're doing, taking the time to really respect and acknowledge their, what they do and their, their knowledge, it, it makes a huge difference. And whether you're a consultant or not, I think that's really important. Agreed. So, it, it, you know, I was going to ask you what you did to earn their respect. And it's, I mean, you sounds like you communicate, you listen, and then you you impress them with your knowledge. Is is there are there other things that you did, or is that is that kind of you know as you're looking at it, are those the building blocks to earning that respect, which comes over time? I mean, there's no short circuit to it. Yeah, there's no short short circuit. I I <laughs> I took uh, I had many many years out in the construction field and even facilities management where I uh, was viewed that I didn't know what I was doing, and you have to as a female I truly believe you have to work 10 times as smart and at least twice as hard. And it, it feels unfair at the time, but I feel like, you know, I've finally gotten to the point in my career where I've overcome that, but engage. One of the things that coming in as a consultant or even coming into a new organization, I would sit with all of my employees and talk to them and, and say, okay, we're a team now. And two big things is I want to know what you're doing currently and what you would like to be doing. Where do you see your value in the organization? And that was, it made some huge changes because I moved people into different positions. And the nice thing about that is many times they felt like they were contributing more and they were happier in what they were doing. So they were more successful and we were still getting the job done. It just may be that we tailored the job a little bit differently or shifted roles and responsibilities around to where it suited people better. And by listening to people and really building true teamwork, you, you earn that respect. You, you can get that respect. And I think that's really how my approach has always been is respecting the individuals you work with or team with and understanding that you're going to have to like it or not <laughs> being a female in this industry. There's a, a period of time where you have to prove yourself. And not resenting that yeah. I have to do that. I'm I'm past resenting that. <laughs> you're also, um, you know, you're a member of the Ashy Ashy faculty. I think that you're perhaps the only female to 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 teach on the FM, the facilities management and the healthcare construction curriculum. Um, how long have you been an Ashy faculty member? And did you want to become an Ashy faculty member? before you tried to become an ASHI faculty member, if that makes sense. Was, had that been a goal of yours and how long it had been a goal of yours before you finally decided to, you know what, I'm going to do this. Interestingly enough, I had been very engaged in the Kansas city area healthcare engineers and sat on the board and been president for a couple of years and spent almost six years. Uh, teaching has always been a passion of mine. And spent about six years really knocking on the door of ASHI staff and saying, hey, I'd really like to teach for ASHI. And there's, um, there's a group of individuals that developed a lot of the programs that taught it, still teach it today. And it was, they didn't really have a need for additional faculty at the time. 
But I literally just kept knocking on the door and saying, I want to give back. I'm at the point where I had so many mentors in ASHI that really helped me. I could pick up the phone and call and ask them questions, ask for support, guidance on anything. I want to give back. I want to be that person that now is giving back to the organization, giving back to people. And I felt like the best way I could do that was through teaching and mentoring other people. So I just kept knocking on the door and eventually they opened it up and said, all right, we need more faculty. (laughs) Can you, can you apply for this? And we're going to interview you. And it is um, currently, I I am the only female that teaches on the FM and construction side with the exception of we we have Lindsay Brackett who does the energy uh, treasure hunt. And we have two faculty that teach the infection control that are females. So it has been really an amazing experience and an honor to be considered in that group of faculty that can go out and give back. Excellent. So your, um, your experience, it seems like it's matched your expectations. Oh, absolutely. Relative to ASHI. ASHI, Yes. I continue to try to be involved. I, I currently am the chair of the professional reputation committee so I continue to try to get involved wherever I can and, you know, hopefully can try for a board position one of these days and continue to be part of a great organization. Excellent. Excellent. You know, um, I was thinking as you were talking and um, we mentioned this briefly in the podcast last week um, that I had done with your, with that I had done with um, three leaders in healthcare FM. We briefly touched on the work-life balance, and it may be unfair to ask you, but I'm asking you because you you you're, you communicate well and you answer everything. How did you? I know you're a mom. How did you handle the work-life balance as you were you're juggling your career and 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 being a mom? Is that difficult? Or and what'd you do that was effective? It was extraordinarily difficult, and I was a single mom for a period of time, and thank goodness I had tremendous support from family and friends, and uh, my daughter's father was very engaged in her life, and then um, I'm now married again, and so my current husband has been tremendously supportive, Couldn't, couldn't have done what I've been able to do without his support, but it was tremendously difficult, and facilities management every time it stormed in Kansas city. And of course we get some horrific storms, but every time it stormed in Kansas city, it would, I I would just cringe because I knew that we would maybe lose power somewhere, have an issue somewhere. We had uh, a possible project where it rained through some temporary roofing, you know, every time. And I had great staff that would normally take care of everything, but it was very, challenging to have a balance. And there were times I really sacrificed time with my daughter for my career. And I don't know that I would do that again. I can't say that I would, but there, you know, my daughter spent weekends when we were repairing an automatic transfer switch and somebody from the, you know, we, I, somebody had to be there and I would take my daughter with me. So she was around mechanical rooms and electrical rooms a lot. And we had gone through a, a major, major switch gear. We were replacing all the emergency normal switch gear for, for a major hospital. 
and um, we traded off weekends because all the work had to be done on weekends. So we traded off weekends between my project managers and I and, and facility staff so that it didn't, the burden of being there in the emergency command center didn't fall on one person. And I felt like if my team had to be there, then I had to take the weekend as well. So my daughter spent a lot of time in those mechanical spaces and, and just tagging along with me to meetings. And she, um, she's a mechanical engineering and computer science student today at CU Boulder. She's a senior and <laughs> has, has had some internships where she came home. She said, mom, I got to see this air handling unit. And I said, honey, you've been seeing those since you were two years old. <laughs> you just don't remember because you're with mom. <laughs> so it, it is yeah. hard to balance it. it. It's, it's, I don't think it's a balance. I think my work really integrated into my life as I I let it all kind of blend together, unfortunately, or fortunately, I'm not sure which, but the, the good thing about that was, is I never missed one of my daughter's field trips at school. So even though I worked long hours, there were certain things that I never missed one of her dive meets. I never missed her field trips. I made it a point to be there and be present for things that were important in her life. Wow. You know, it's funny, as you say that, um, and I have children as well and um, a little bit younger than your daughter, but it's amazing. And this isn't a parental podcast at all, but it's just, it's, it's, it's funny how quickly things happen. You know, when they're smaller, you figure you have all this runway in front of you with them. And then they get to this point and you realize how quickly it's gone by and like, you've lost those opportunities. And so it's always, that's what I've always tried to do too. It's always nice when you hear somebody who says, you know what, you maximize those opportunities. It might not have been what you envisioned, but you were together and you hit it. And, and so that no regret thing is so important because it passes in the blink of an eye. You know, they're here and then they're gone. Um, so I, I thank you for, for answering that one, honestly, because we hear it, as I said last week, you know, um, candidates always ask us, ask us about work-life balance for organizations. And it's a thing now. You want to make sure that you don't have regrets. Um, so thanks for that answer. That's a good one. And she's a mechanical engineer, so... <laughs> You were doing something, something. She's not a, she's not going to be a dentist, I guess. No, and she really loves what she does. But it, it is it is important, and especially, like I said, facilities and construction for healthcare. Healthcare never stops. Those buildings are open 24-7, 365, and really building a team around you where you can share that responsibility and share that load is so important because – if we don't get away and we don't take care of ourselves, we, we can't really serve the organizations that we work for and be effective in our jobs. And so I, I really, it, it's beyond a balance. We, if we blend that life between work and, and our home life, we have to be able to have some areas where we can rejuvenate and refresh and then be ready to go for work. And I, I know that I wasn't perfect at that balance um, just because of the demands of my job for many years. And it and that's the reason I changed from working for a healthcare organization at Johnson Controls because my daughter was entering high school and I was real I was spending way too much time because I had two open positions and the hospital had put a, a hiring freeze or system as a system wide position. They put a hiring freeze in place. And so 
I was filling the role of a VP and a director, a system-wide director of facilities. And I had a couple of other openings and I couldn't fill them. And I was, I was literally doing two to three jobs. And I, um, I found that I was not able to be present with my daughter and I was so stressed when I got home. I, I really wasn't there for her. So that was the pivotal point where I made a shift to go to Johnson Patrols. Yeah, that's, that's a great shift on, on your part. I mean, we tell people all the time and you got to that point. If you know, you're know you working within, or in, within an organization, you're trying to work within the parameters. But if you come to that point where it's just, you know, where that stress level and you can't do what you want to do, you make that choice. And it certainly seems like you made a, a good one for you. Um, you and I were talking. I know you've done some research on and I know you're passionate about it. Just talking about females in the industry. And you had said that in 1985, um, the percentages of females enrolled in engineering was only 7% engineering-based programs in college. In 2016, um, 20 years later, a um, little bit more than 20, actually a little bit more, right? I, I told you I wasn't good at math and physics. That would be 30 years later. Um, the percentage had only increased to to 12%. Were you surprised by that? And, and why do you think that number increased by such a small amount? I was shocked honestly, because I thought it had gotten much better. And I, I really think that there's, there's a lot to mentoring. And I have been mentoring my daughter and her friends, her two best friends, one is in medical school, one's in a chemical engineering student in Alabama. And I just had an hour long phone call with her, her the other night. And she just needed somebody to tell her, you know, some career advice. She's doing a co-op. And I think that mentoring piece is so important. And it's what young ladies, especially in um, from the time they're very little, we, we don't get as much and we don't get told about, we hear about STEM a lot more than we have in obviously ever. And it's, there's still a big gap. We still have commercials out there that portray that the, technology, construction, um, all of the more mechanical type jobs are filled by men. And I really try to get the message out there. I, I go to colleges. I sit on the board of the University of Nebraska. I, I went to K-State. I, I try to speak at a lot of universities, and, and usually that's a little too late. But I also take time to, to talk to young women and try to be a role model. And it, it worked for my daughter and her friends and, um, and, and just try to say, you know, this is, this is a really great career path and you have the knowledge and the skills to do it. So it's, it's disappointing to me that we haven't gotten more women in the STEM field, but it, it is hopefully changing and we're hopefully on a, an upward climb and incline. And the one thing I continue to tell people, uh, especially women in our industry is, is you don't just need a mentor, but please find a sponsor. Some, you know, your sponsor is somebody who pulls you up the ladder, a mentor, somebody who kind of helps you along the way and advises you that make sure you have that sponsor because without a sponsor and somebody to really pull you up and say, okay, this person is a high performer a lot of times women who have that ability are really overlooked. And an ex example that I found that was interesting is I, I was engaged in a diversity project across my company. And the three things that came out of that project were 
you know, you really need a, a clear and concise development plan. So if, if you do want to move up in the world or you want to, you, you've entered as an engineer and you see yourself in a, a different role or you have higher aspirations of, and want to move up or get into healthcare facilities is what do I have to do to get there? What is that development plan? What education, what training do I need? And then making sure that that you communicate that and say, look, I'm out there. I'm going to, here's what I want to do. What else can I do to get there? And then the, the two other things are really that mentor and sponsor to really help you along the way. And that's really where Ashy has helped me in my career is all those mentors and sponsors that I've had through that organization. And it, it has just helped me tremendously. That's great. I, I wanted to um, I wanted to ask a I think a final question, Renee. And I'm joined by Renee Jacobs today. Thank you to Renee for her time. But along the mentor and sponsorship, because um, you, know, you hear a lot about mentorship, but then you've gone that extra step to sponsorship. And I'd imagine it's easier to find a mentor than a sponsor, perhaps. But I was going to other than Ashy, if you're, you know, let's say you're a female or even a male, or let's stay with female. You're looking. How do you find a sponsor? And is it difficult to go beyond yourself to ask for somebody to sponsor? Does that question make sense? It does. And I think you have to ask. Sometimes there's a natural sponsor where you find somebody in your organization, say you're a maintenance manager or director of facilities, and you see that the CFO or you've built a relationship with a VP and you you have to ask those questions. Would you be willing to sponsor me and find those individuals that have been impressed with what you've, you're doing and ask them, would you be willing to sponsor me? I really want to move to this next level and I need guidance. I need somebody to go to that higher level and tell them that I have these capabilities and I really want this and I'm willing to do what it takes to get there. So that sponsorship, I think, sometimes comes naturally. Somebody in your organization sees you and identifies you that you have the potential to be in another role or to move up in the organization. But if it doesn't come naturally, I think I think you have to ask. A lot of what you've talked about today um, at the foundation, it's communication, right? Com- just communication and advocating for yourself no matter where you are in your career. And I'm nodding my head here and you can't see that, but absolutely. It's, it's all about communication and communicating what you want. And, and one thing that is, is interesting is as women, we just inherently don't believe we, we don't extend ourselves like other people do. So a, a good example, I was talking to a young um, leader, facilities leader at an ASHI Leadership Institute, and she had been. There was another position that was a regional position, and somebody had tapped her on the shoulder and said, "Hey, you should apply for this within her organization." And she was literally toiling in her mind. She said, "I don't know that I have all the skills. I don't know that I'm ready." And I said, "Look, if you were somebody else, and you were not a female, you would have raised your hand, whether you had the skills or not." and knew everything about the position, you would have raised your hand and said, look, I can do this. I want to do this. I can do this. And that's, that's what you need to do. 
You need to take the risk. You'll, if you don't have the skills, you'll develop them. You'll figure it out, but you've got the basic skill set to do the job. You just, there, there may be one or two little things that you're going to have to learn. And she was very taken back by my approach. It's like, put yourself in a different mindset. Go, go for it. You can do it. I, you know, we had, obviously you're in the Ashy Leadership Institute. (laughs) Everybody sees you as a leader and we have faith in you. So just raise your hand and, and take those, take that little leap and, and you'll be fine. Yep. Great advice. Great advice. Renee Jacobs, thank you for joining me this morning on the High Reliability Podcast. I appreciate it and wish you nothing but the best going forward. Thank you so much, Pete. I really appreciate it. Great. Have a good day. This is Peter Martin for the High Reliability Podcast, Goslin Martin Associates. Have a great day and we will see you next time.